Today, award-winning translator and editor Daniel Han is talking about his approach to translations, evaluating the work of translation, and uh, about the Portuguese novel Resistance that he translated, which is authored by Julian Fuchs. Daniel Han is a writer, editor, and translator with around a hundred books to his credit. His work includes translations from Europe, Africa, and the Americas. encompassing fiction children's books and plays and many non-fiction books including the oxford companion to children's literature he was appointed as officer of the order of the british empire in the year 2020 for his services to literature you can buy the novel resistance uh, using the link uh, given in the show notes Good evening, uh, Daniel. Welcome to our podcast, uh, Harshneem. Good evening, or good good afternoon from here. It's nice to be here. How did you end up uh, choosing a career in translation? In a way, the, the the idea of choosing a career in translation isn't quite right. I started translating sort of by accident because I wasn't planning to be a translator, but I was doing some work for a publisher who asked me to translate something, and I said yes. So I don't feel like I ever chose it. I feel like I kind of stumbled into it, but I was in a position to stumble into it partly because I had some fairly considerable competence in in uh, other languages, partly through through heritage. My my mother is from Brazil, my father is from Argentina, um, and so even though I only speak English to my parents, I've always my whole life had Portuguese and Spanish um, in my ears all the time. And so I've always had the habit of consuming both of those languages. I've never spoken them very much, but I am surrounded by them all the time, and I understand them very well, and I read them very comfortably. Um, I translate from French a little bit as well, but my French is from from sort of conventional education. I did French until I was, you know, through high school and stuff. But I happened because I had Portuguese and Spanish at least passively up to a very high level. um i was in a position to to give translating a try which i did as i say by accident and then it turned out that it was uh, quite fun and it turned out that i was i think quite good at it in that first that first commission and so i find myself many years later and many books later uh, still here slightly surprisingly the normal inclination for any translator would be get into literary fiction but uh, you have done lot of work uh, you know in children's literature too children's literature is a funny one for me because i've i've been interested i mean i've been interested in children's books since i was a child i don't think i stopped at any point after being a child but i also uh, when i was starting to work sort of in my 20s um i did various little jobs to do with children's books that were nothing to do with translation so actually through my 20s i was uh I didn't do any translating really. I did some children's books work and I also you know I I wrote a bit. But it took quite a long time for the translating and the children's books to come together. They run in parallel for a while. I worked with children's books and I worked as a translator and only after some years that I get into a position where I started being able to translate children's books also. And now um children's books and picture books particularly are I think my favorite sort of translation uh, to do. I translate very different kinds of things. I translate for grown-ups as well as children. I translate non-fiction and fiction, and sometimes plays and all sorts of other things. Um, but children's picture books 
uh, are, I think, my favorite kind of translation. And it feels like a nice marriage of my enjoyment of translation and my enjoyment of children's books. I believe uh, there is a good market for children literature across the world for English uh, translations, right? It's difficult, actually. The the English-speaking world um, produces a lot of really good uh, children's writing from early picture books all the way through to sort of young adult writing. And we are a very good exporter of children's books. You will find uh, British, American, Irish, Canadian, Australian, New Zealand children's writers and illustrators in bookshops and libraries all over the world. Getting work into English from other languages is a much more difficult proposition. I mean, that's true about adult books as well, but it's much more extreme with children's books. There's a, the, the imbalance is much greater with children's books. Um, so actually, I uh, even though I love doing children's books, I don't do nearly as many as I would like. Uh, I'm limited by how much demand there is. So I end up doing uh, children's books when I have the opportunity, but the demand is quite, is quite uh, constrained. You have set up an award for uh, literary translators and editors too. What was the thought process? So this was a prize um, which uh, I set up with the Society of Authors in the UK and the Translators Association about six or seven seven years ago, I think, which is called the TA First Translation Prize. And it's a first translation prize in the sense that it's for a debut translator. Um, translation is a difficult profession to make a start in literary translation. It's hard to get your first job. It's hard to sustain a career, even once you have got your first your first job. And so I wanted a prize that recognized a translator at the very beginning of their career, which would be able to give encouragement to, you know, a short list of them and to give uh, a small monetary prize, but also recognition to a, a really good debut translator every year. But I also thought that it would be really nice to recognize the role of the editor in making those debuts happen. I got the idea from a prize that exists in the UK for children's uh, fiction written in English called the Branford Bowes Award, which is split between the debut author and their editor. And so I, I borrowed, uh, stole, I stole that idea from them. Um, and so the TA First Translation Prize is split between the translator and their nominated editor as a way of recognizing not only how hard it is to translate, you know, to get your first translation job and do it really well, but also how important it is to have an editor who will take a risk on a first-time translator and who will work with a first-time translator to make a book really, really brilliant. And I think especially in a context where we always talk about how little translators are, are recognized, often how underappreciated translators are, which I think is often true, but I think it's even more true that editors are even less acknowledged, often not named, and editors will often have quite a, quite a, a significant role in, the, in a book achieving what it can be. You were involved in this project called SALT, that is South Asian Literature in Translation. Uh, could you please give us uh, details of this particular project? Sure. The SALT project is something which was just set up. Um, we just launched it earlier this year. And it's attempting to uh, encourage the production and promotion of literature from languages of South Asia, translated into English, but published outside South Asia. There's a lot of writing, for example, by Indian writers that might be translated into English and published in India. But there's a real difficulty getting those writers from an, an Indian publisher, say, to a publisher in the UK or the US. I know that in this podcast, you've talked to Daisy Rockwell, who won the uh, International Booker last year with Itanjali Shri's 
Tomb of Sand, but that was the first time any book from South Asia had been, I think, even on the shortlist at that point for the International Booker. And Gitanjali has been writing for a long time, and she's amazing. And Daisy has been translating for a long time, and she's amazing. But actually getting work out of South Asia to other parts of the English-speaking world is very difficult. And so this whole project is based at the University of Chicago. I'm running it with my friend Jason Grunebaum, who uh, works there and teaches Hindi and translation at the University of Chicago. And it aims to support all of the different parts of the chain that get a book from, if you like, from a writer in South Asia to a reader in the English-speaking world outside South Asia. So it supports translators through mentorships, through uh, sample grants, through travel grants. It supports uh, publishers, translation costs and promotional costs. There are travel grants for publishers. There's a summer school for translators. There's various kinds of promotional support as well. And so it's hoping to, over the next few years, make a sort of, what I hope will be a significant difference, but by making lots of small changes at every at every point in that in that chain. We've just opened our our travel grant, uh, publisher's travel grant application window. We're going to be announcing our first wave of translator mentorships in just a few days' time. We then will open the publisher's grant uh, in about a month's time, publisher's translation grant in a month's time, and then uh, the translator's summer school details for that will be confirmed by the end of this year. So it's a sort of rolling thing we're adding to it, but it's um, it's up and up and running now, and there's lots of information at the Salt has a, has a web present at the University of Chicago. So there's lots and lots of information there. That, that's really nice. So this window for applications is uh, still open, you mean to say? So the grant that is open at the moment is for uh, publishers in the English-speaking world who are not in South Asia to travel to South Asia. So it's for publishers. Uh, th- this particular grant is for publishers who might be in New Zealand or Ireland or the US or wherever, um, if they want to go to one of the countries in South Asia to meet publishers or to go to festivals or to go to bookstores, if they want to go and try and find exciting things they want to publish, the grant is designed for them. So that's that's already open. And the, and the, the first thing that is that will be open for translators is the mentoring ALTA, which is the American Literary Translators Association that runs a great mentoring program already will be running eight South Asia specific mentorships as part of their program this year, which will be announced uh, in a few days' time. When it comes to you know, judging a translation, uh, you have been ju- judged for many translation competitions. Uh, I was wondering you know, how the book for translation for an award is judged. Because do you get a, I don't know whether you get a chance to read the original. I don't think it is a possibility at all. I'm just wondering what will be the process. It depends on the price. There are some prizes which might be, for example, limited to translations from Language X. And then it's possible to get judges who are able to read both and who can assess the, the translations in that way. A lot of the time, what what is happening is not that, though, because a lot of the time what we're doing is judging a translation in terms of how it works as a piece of in the case of my my work, will be a piece of English, which is sort of the way a, a reader would judge it. If I buy a book in a bookshop and it's been translated into English, my appraisal of it will not be what is the relationship of this to the original, to the to the source. My appraisal of it will be what is the prose like? Are the jokes funny? Can I hear the voices? How 
interesting is is what it's trying to do stylistically or formally or thematically or whatever. And so a lot of the time, the prizes uh, are looking at translations as works of English. Uh, in some cases, looking at them alongside things that may be, have been written in English. So something like the, the Impact Prize, that now called the Dublin International Dublin Literary Award, uh, looks at translations into English alongside things that were written first in English. And you're just judging 140 or whatever it is, novels. When you choose your shortlist and you choose your winner, then you have to acknowledge that if it was a translation, then there was more than one person who who got it to that point where you're reading a brilliant book in English. But something like the like the International Booker, which we mentioned that, that uh, Daisy Rockwell won last year with Kitanjali Shri, the International Booker will have submissions translated from many dozens of languages. The judges won't be comparing them. The judges will be reading a hundred and whatever books in English, choosing the one they think is the most is the best, the most accomplished, the most interesting, the most ambitious, the most whatever, almost regardless of the fact that there happen to have been two authors rather than one. And then they make a determination that if this book that is a translation in English is extraordinarily good in, on all those levels, the texture of the prose and the voice and the sound and all those things, then there are two people who need to be rewarded for it. But you're not in in a prize like that, you're not really looking for something very different, I think, to a prize for anything just written in one language. Um, you have uh, any specific value attached to a translation which talks about the contemporary issue. For example, you know, the Ukraine war that is going on. Somebody writes a book on that. It's a very good translation. Will it have any added advantage? In a, in a prize, you mean? Yes, in a prize, yes. I don't think so. I mean, I think it depends on it depends on the the jury. I suspect most juries would would want to would want to to try to compare things like like for like, um, and not not say, well, this this happens to be an issue um, that is in the news, and therefore I'm going to. Uh, I'm going to uh, give it extra, extra credit, as it were. But I do think also that it's that as readers, it's quite hard to separate those things sometimes. That if you read a book that really speaks to you very powerfully because you are quite engaged with the the story already, there will always be some sort of bias, and you try to. I think you would probably try to avoid it. But I think it probably depends on the prize. It depends on the, the the jury. What's interesting is a lot of these prizes, including the very big ones, don't have very detailed criteria, which means it's often up to the the jury to decide what they're looking for. Um, so it might vary from from time to time. Okay, you all all judges they get together and decide what exactly they want to do, kind of a thing. Yeah, because you have to decide. For example, in the case of if you're if you know you you've decided that you're looking for the best book and you can't decide what that what best book means you have to decide if you imagine we we come down to two possibilities and one of those possibilities is is quite short beautifully put together sort of perfect like a perfect piece of writing if you can have such a thing it's not like incredibly original but it's but it's flawless and on the other hand you have something which is 600 pages long 
and uh, is not flawless because it's not you know tiny and intricate and perfect, but it is amazing and it's ambitious and you you can forgive tiny little flaws because it's doing in some way something much more difficult than that first one. Those two things, both of those could win this prize depending on what you think what you as a group think is more interesting and you might be looking for impeccable prose or you might be looking for formal you know something that excites you in terms of what it's doing formally or stylistically um, and it's not that one of those things is better than the other but they are they could be extraordinary pieces of work just in two wildly different ways as a professional translator how often uh, you get to choose a particular work to get translated to take up the translation well in one sense i always get to choose, almost always get to choose because i work as a freelancer so i get to decide which contracts i sign and which i don't so i'm not under contract to a publisher and therefore having to do the next thing that they compel me to do that doesn't mean that i choose from scratch and i have unlimited choice um but it means that there is some process of negotiation uh in in reaching the point where i'm translating a book which might include me telling a publisher about something that i think they should be interested in it might include them telling me about a book that they think i would be interested in um or somewhere in between where it comes out of a quite long conversation sometimes over years there are occasions when i will translate a book i don't totally love because i have a gap in the schedule and i need to be working and i you know if i have two months off and there's the opportunity to do something easy i will do it but i'm lucky that for the most part uh, i've translated books that i really really love working on that i really love these books they they come from lots of different places but like i say it sometimes from me occasionally very rarely sort of out of the blue from a publisher but sometimes that happens but it then requires me knowing that i want to do it before i will sign a contract knowing that i think i'm able to do it and having the time and them having the money and all those important things so how do you choose a particular book to translate well it's it i mean part of it is it's what i was just saying about about f- finding things i like or having things i like introduced to me and those things are quite hard to pin down in the same way as it is for any reader you can predict a little bit what you're going to like but you can never be absolutely sure that this is something you like but also it has to do with if i'm being commissioned not just to read this book for a day i'm being commissioned to translate this book for 3 months i also have to have a sense of of being able to do it being able to live in this thing for several months and and connect to it not just you know can i bear to read it but do i have some idea of what it will feel like in english can i hear the voice in english and so i think the books i've worked on there's a, a really big range i think i hope of of styles i think the writers are doing really different things uh, i don't think i think it'll be very hard to pin down what is you know a daniel hahn sort of book so you don't have any reservations like uh, this kind of books i won't be doing like I don't translate poetry very much um otherwise I, but I have done a couple of books of poetry um otherwise I I don't have strict rules I mean I I there are some things I do more than others there are some kinds of books I translate more than others I translate you know most of the books I translate are probably 
adult fiction um, of a certain literary type, I think, in some ways. They have certain, they probably share some literary influences, that sort of thing. But if there's something very different from that that appeals to me, I'll do that. I've done a fair amount of nonfiction of a very wide range. This year I'm publishing, uh, over the course of the year, I have a few picture books, I have a few novels, I have a collection of short stories, I have a, a nonfiction collection of sort of essays, and I have a nonfiction book about lighthouses. And uh, those things don't have very much in common, except I like them all. And I like something about the way they're written, not just what they're saying, but I, I, I like the sound of them. So they're all things that I am happy to spend time and things that I'm uh, able to do, something that I am proud of at the end. There are certain cultural references, pop cultural reference or a movie reference in most of these books specific to that particular region. Uh, how do you solve this? Because the readers may not be aware of. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't always solve it. Sometimes I don't care. Sometimes I will leave it. I, I'm, I'm very comfortable with the idea that readers will sometimes not know. Um, not least because if I, as a reader of English, read a book that is written in English in, by a writer in India or a writer in Detroit or a writer in Johannesburg or a writer in Auckland, I will often be reading things which are in a kind of cultural framework that is not familiar to me that will reference singers or newspapers or politicians or kinds of food or whatever. And I don't feel like absolutely all the time it's essential that the reader gets these things explained to them. There's some small number of cases where I think it is important because the, the the book or the piece of writing does to some extent depend on the reader knowing so it's important that the you know the reason the reason the characters are eating this food a, a reader in the source country might automatically know that this tells you something about their socioeconomic background say um or about some some other aspect of their life and that's and if that's significant then I will find some way of smuggling in that information. But a lot of the time, it's it's not significant. And I think increasingly, as I get on with this job, uh, comfortable with people being, with people not knowing everything in the same way that we don't know everything if we read in, in English. And people, if they absolutely desperately need to know who the singer is, they can Google the singer. Your book about uh, translation process, you said the diary of translation, Catching Fire, it's a, one of the very well written books because it's uh, it's very difficult to write uh, you know about the translation process about a particular craft in a, such an interesting way it's beautifully written thank you it has a lengthy discussion about uh, translating titles uh, why do you think it is essential to be choosy about uh, titles when you are translating i think it's it's important to be choosy about titles when you're writing and I think translation is is no different from that. I think you you want a title to be able to do lots of things. You want a title to, if you are the author and or the translator, you want the title to represent the work in some clever way. To 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 maybe to suggest something about the work, or to be a distillation of the work, or a summary of the work, or to tease something about the work. But the title also has to be something that is going to be 
printed on the front of the book and on the spine and in the catalogs and in the bookshops and whatever. And it's, and it's a marketing tool also. So it's not enough for the author to like the title or the translator to like the title. It also is something the publishers have to be comfortable with. The people who are doing sales or publicity or whatever it might be need to be comfortable with it as well. The title has to work very hard. And I think the only way in which it's slightly different as a translator uh, than as a writer is because as a translator, there is a kind of default. You know, there was a title to begin with in some other language. And so you have to think a little bit more about whether whether you're going to go with this existing default title or whether you're going to construct something that might be similar or, or might be radically different, but which will do all of the things you want a title to do and work as, as good marketing and good all those other things and be memorable and sound nice and ideally be, you know, four words long. <laughs> when you translate a book, what is the process flow? What kind of engagement uh, you will have with the author of the novel or the book? The process for me is pretty similar every time I do a book. Um, I tend to do first drafts incredibly quickly. Uh, my first drafts are usually very, very bad, but very quick. And so I can get from a bad first draft, you know, get a bad first draft down on paper as quickly as I can, and then work on it and work on it and work on it. I often start translating a book without having read the book before or without having read all of it, at least. And so the the speed is also me discovering the book in that first draft. And then I will do, uh, I don't know how many drafts, many drafts, filling in the gaps and then going over the, the surface of it over and over until I have something that I'm that I'm happy with. I don't enjoy first drafts very much, and I do enjoy all of those other bits. So I've my process kind of weights things towards the bits I, I think are fun. So I get the first draft done quickly, and then I enjoy myself until it's ready. And often in the, the, the latter part of the process is when the author gets involved. Most of my authors, I mean, not quite all, but almost all of my authors have some kind of engagement with the translation process. Um, the, the, the smallest amount would be, you know, answering a few questions, and that's fine. In some cases, they will, uh, if their English is good, uh, they will read the whole draft. They might not just answer questions, but they might comment on the entire draft. We might go back and forth quite a lot. I always allow them the the opportunity to be very involved if they want to be, and the the extent to which they they do depends on the extent to which they would like to or or are able to. Um, but I always welcome that. I think it's always incredibly useful for me and interesting, and uh, revealing in lots of ways. And they then, uh, yes, like I say, more often than not, they get quite involved. This particular book, Resistance, uh, is written by an Argentine writer. Can you take us through the state of uh, contemporary literary fiction from Argentina? So this writer, Julian Fuchs, is, I think you could call him an Argentine writer, or you could call him a Brazilian writer, and either of those would be a, a partial description of who he is um he he has lived his whole life in brazil his parents are from argentina um but he lived his whole life in brazil and he writes in portuguese but he's one of a, a i think an amazing generation of uh of writers in brazil and in argentina uh writers sort of you know late 30s to early 50s there's a really interesting generation of people who are often as in the case of julian the, the sort of the, the generation after the generation who fought against military oppression, the generation who were maybe you know one generation after the migrants or one generation after the refugees. And there are some amazing writers 
as I say, Argentina and Brazil uh, in the sort of 40-something, early 50s generation. I've been lucky to translate several of them. And Julian, who is uh, in his 40s, I now can't think exactly how old, is, is, a, is a really nice example of that. And not least because, as with several of writers of that generation, he's dealing specifically with uh, some of the issues that come from that. He's dealing with what is the legacy of his parents' experience, in, his, in this case, as, as militants and fighting against Argentine military rule. There are a lot of really exciting writers in both of those countries and in lots of other Latin American countries. And I think, in a way, the thing that is, that is as exciting as that is that those writers are now being recognized in, in other parts of the world. It's not just that they have thriving literary scenes in Buenos Aires or in Sao Paulo or in Mexico City or in uh, Bogota. It's that there is a, there's a real presence of Latin American fiction uh, in, in translation all over the world. That's that's a much newer thing compared to a couple of decades ago. I think that I think a couple of decades ago there were great writers in these countries, but they weren't nearly as well globalized by the publishing machine. And so Julian's books, for example, uh, and Catching Fire, which you mentioned, all published by a publisher called Charco Press, based in Edinburgh, who publish only books of Latin American fiction translated into English. And they alone have discovered lots and lots of writers from Argentina, from Brazil, from uh, Colombia, from many other countries in, in Latin America. The book I'm publishing next week is with them. It's a book from Argentina, in fact. And one of the things that allowed them to do this, they're a great publisher, but they also were able to take advantage of the fact that there were so many writers writing in Latin America who were doing amazing work, who did not have publishers yet in the English-speaking world. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of low-hanging fruit. Could you please introduce uh, this book, Resistance, uh, to our listeners uh, who have not yet read it? Sure. Resistance is um, what I think we probably could call autofiction in the sense that it's, it's fairly, it fairly closely maps certain contours of the author's own uh, biography. Um, and the story, very roughly, is that Julian's parents, the author's parents, left Argentina in uh before he was born. He was then born in Brazil. But they ad adopted a child. Uh, so Julian has a brother who is adopted. And the book is, uh, among many other things, Julian's attempt to think about his parents' experience before he was born, when they were in Argentina and as, as militants, to think about his brother's experience being adopted and, and being part of that family and how some of these stories are quite difficult to talk about and what are the silences that appear in, in families like this. The, the title resistance refers to many, many different things, but one of them is political resistance as a militant, but it also refers to stories that slightly resist being brought out into the light. I think publishers call the sort of book quiet as though it were, that were an insult somehow, but it's a very kind of thoughtful, meditative, really beautifully written, quite economical. It's not, the writing isn't self-indulgent, but it's very, very careful. And it's full of, it's full of insight and it's full of, yeah, the writing it's, itself is incredibly beautiful. It's not in any way a, a flashy show-off ebook, but it's really, I think, incredibly powerful in a quiet and slightly surprising way, because it's not full of plot. It's full of, I mean, some things happen. The character, the narrator, who is close to Julian, the narrator, goes to Argentina and sees things and meets people and so forth. But it's not 
it's not flashy. It doesn't have fireworks. It's so delicate, but but really, I think gets under your skin. Yeah, delicate is the right word to describe the book. Actually, there is an Argentine film recently which was nominated for best foreign language film. That is 1985. I believe this particular book, Resistance, is the after effects of what happened in that film. Argentina in 1985 is looking at, um, among other things, a trial into a trial of some of the people who were involved in the uh, Argentina's military rule, including Jorge Rafael Videla, who is one of the, who for, for many years was the, the, the leader of the country. And so it's a sort of different aftermath to the aftermath that Juliana is writing about. The interesting thing for me, though, is that the, I, I just mentioned a moment ago that I've got a book with Charco coming out uh, next week from Argentina. And actually, that book uh, overlaps in really interesting ways with Argentina 1985. Um, it's a book called Confession by a writer called Martin Cohen, and it deals really closely with this one particular character, Videla, who appears, who was this this uh, Argentine leader, um, and who appears as a character in, in the, the movie in Argentina 1985, when Ricardo Darín, the amazing actor who plays the lawyer, um, is doing his speeches. Videla's, you know, one of the people in the dock. He's a very, very grim character. And he features quite a lot in very clever and odd and ways that I'm not going to spoil in this book, Confession, which which is partly about the kind of legacy of that time. It overlaps with the film and it overlaps with Julian's book in an interesting way. It's set partly in the middle of the 20th century when Videla was a teenager, late teenager, partly um, when he was the uh, the president. And then much, much later, very in the present, when he is when he has been relegated to the past. But I was in the middle of working on uh, this book, Confession, the Martin Cohen book, uh, when I saw Argentina 1985, and so they they kind of fused a little bit in my head. You have translated Julian's one more book, uh, that is Occupation, I writing. Yeah. Can we say that uh, this uh, Confession? Resistance and Occupation is kind of a trilogy from Daniel Han. It's interesting. They, they sound like, I mean, Confession does sound like it would be a, a nice match, doesn't it? I mean, I think, Julian, I think we were talking about Resistance and Occupation as the first two parts of a, of, of a I don't know if trilogy is quite the right word, but maybe it is, um, hoping that Julian would write a third book to go with Resistance and Occupation. But maybe I have to write to him and say, "I'm sorry, we're using someone else's book. You took you took too long. We're going to we're going to complete your trilogy with Martin Cohen's book <laughs> right. because we we got fed up with waiting." Um, they do. I mean, I think resistance and occupation are are such an interesting pair, and whatever Julian does next, uh, whether it's related or not, will be an interesting trio. But yes, confession does overlap, not stylistically, really, not formally really but certainly there are some it covers some some of the same historical territory as as resistance though though he has a different he looks at it very differently i think oh who is publishing the book same charco press or it's it's a charco press book yeah charco press when is it coming out uh, so confession is coming out on the i think it's the 5th of september so um, now basically Interestingly, you have an Argentine connection too. Your father is from Argentina. It's interesting because I, 
So I've never lived in Argentina. I've never spent very much time in Argentina. I go to Brazil, where my mother's from, very often. I go very rarely to Argentina. Um, but as you say, my father is from there, and I grew up hearing my father speaking and his friends speaking and so forth. But not only is my father from Argentina, my my father, indeed both of my parents, are psychoanalysts, as Julian's uh, parents are in in the novel and also in reality. So actually, we do have... Julian and I are, I think I'm very slightly older than him, but we're very much the same generation with parents, with um, Argentine Brazilian psychoanalyst parents, um, which brought me quite close to the book in lots of ways. There are lots of little references that I that I recognized. And our parents are, are exactly the same generation and, and I think will have met each other. You know, the author's parents and my parents will have met in the 1970s. I think Kugian's parents met my parents in uh, before we were born. And so I, there, there was a weird connection in a way that the fact that the book happens to be set in this country wasn't what connected it to me. It was much closer and much more particular than that. So yes, it was It was certainly, of all the books I've translated, the one where where the, the narrator's autobiography overlaps the most with mine. I used to know that. Now, are there any specific areas or passages uh, while translating it, where you had to spend a lot of time. Julian is difficult because he's because the writing is so careful and it's so precise and it requires many, many drafts just to get the every spring in every sentence right. I what I did actually in the case of his book, I ended up working for a very long time on the opening, you know, six or eight pages. Which is something I do often. I often, you know, do all of my drafts and then have to do the beginning again. But it was much more extreme in this case because I translated the opening of the book uh, long before translating the rest of the book. It was going to be used, I think, for him to read at a public event, and then it was going to be published by might have been Granta. Someone was going to publish an extract, and then there was something else. So I had about two years, I think where the only thing I translated of that book before the, the novel actually happened. I think the fir- maybe the first one was Julian got a, a, a mentorship with with Rolex, and I think they needed a bit translated for them. And so I did live with that opening for a really long time. And so that got, and I think it's good, I'm very pleased with how it sounds, but it, but that's the bit that I kept coming back to and and had already done a lot of work on even before I sort of officially started translating this book. Now, when it comes to the style of writing, I found it to be very unique. Uh, Not that it is written in first person. Whenever uh, he's talking about the past, he narrates uh, something to us which has been told to him by his parents, obviously. When he's talking about it, I think he goes beyond what has been told to him. He even starts assuming certain things, you know, filling the gaps. That I found it uh, very interesting, actually, the way it is written. Also, something which, in a funny way, is not difficult for a translator. It's sort of easier for a translator because whoever's telling the story, it's always really him. Right. Not like that. There aren't, you know, 20 pages narrated by his mother or by his father or by his brother or by his sister or by anybody else. It's always him. It's either him as himself or him paraphrasing and, as you say, filling in the gaps, you know, telling his version of their version of someone else's version of the story. So actually, the, it, it isn't one of those books where you need to sort of create lots of quite distinct and coherent voices, because actually, I think the prose is very consistent 
not just in this book, but across this, you know, in occupation also. And so in a funny way, that process whereby he, you know, gets stories from people, but sort of sucks them into his telling of, this, of, the, of the novel does kind of help as a, as a translator, because I, there is one vocal thread that goes from the first word of that book to the last word of that book. And it's, it's incredibly consistent, I think, you know, rhythm and that kind of thing. Actually, in the novel, uh, his brother, Julian's brother, suffers more, apparently. Instead of Julian, had the narrator been his brother, how the novel would have turned out? It would have been incredibly different, partly because the experience would be different, but also because I think Julian would have found it, it would be such a different, um, it would be such a different sort of presumption for him to, 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 I mean, the idea of presuming to speak on behalf of someone else is something which I think he'd be very, very anxious about doing. He's so careful, and this is one of the things that occupation is about, actually. He's so careful about not just taking other people's stories and making them uh, making them into his, which is why what he does with everyone's stories and resistance is really interesting because he is he's completely acknowledging the fact that there is this discrepancy. Um, a lot of occupation is about how to figure out how to tell other people's stories without appropriating them. Um, and I don't think in resistance he would have, he would have, I was going to say dead, but I think presumed is the right word to do this to his brother. It, it's as it is, he is speculating, but he's speculating because he, it's not his business to do anything, anything other than that. He's, he's always going to be on the outside of that story. We have come to last uh, couple of questions. Uh, supposing that uh, you have to define a code of ethics for translators, what would it look like? I don't feel like it's my job to take what translators translate or how translators translate. Though I do, one thing I do talk, especially to new translators quite a lot, is about how they're making their choices, about being deliberate and being careful in their choices, whether it's about what you translate or how you translate it. I don't have rules about, you know, I should be able to translate this or that, or I should do it in this way or that way. But I think the way of being respectful towards one's writers, language, readers, country, all those things to do with deliberateness and care, the things that I'm the things that I'm least proud of in my work are not things where I've, where I think I've made a bad decision. It's things where I've been careless. I think not that I, you know, decided to translate something and then decided I shouldn't have. It's when I've made a decision. I mean, when I haven't even made decision, I've kind of done, done something easily without being deliberate about it. And I think that's important. I had a really interesting panel event a couple of days ago at the Edinburgh International Book Festival, where I've just come back from, with some people who've written books that are one way or another about, about language and partly about translation. And we ended up talking quite a lot about, about deliberateness and care and wanting to understand, and also about humility in, in translation, not in the sense that translators should be self-effacing, which I don't believe, not in the sense that translators should be servile, which I don't believe or it's subservient at all, really. I don't believe any of those things. But I think approaching texts with a certain amount of 
humility in the sense of not wanting to dominate it, not wanting to turn it into something that you think is more important than the author, and trying to genuinely trying to understand it, generally wanting to understand it, which sounds obvious, but uh, is maybe a bit more radical than that. Beautiful. Okay. Finally, what are the current projects that you are working on? So the next thing I have coming out is the the Martin Kuan I mentioned, Confession, uh, followed by this book on lighthouses, which is coming out in October. I'm currently translating a Brazilian book for Chaco Press uh, by a writer called Antonio Shershineski. Then uh, Tom Bunstead, who's a brilliant translator from Spanish, uh, he and I are co-translating another book. We've done several by a Spanish writer called Juan José Millas. This Millas book is called, I think it'll be called Only Smoke in English. We haven't talked about the title, and titles, as you know, are very important. But I think it'll be Only Smoke. So that's the that's the next thing once I finish this one. But I have, this is also the time of year when I, there are a lot of literary festivals and a lot of traveling and a lot of that sort of thing. Uh, and the Salt Project, which we were talking about. So I, so all the actual translating will take slightly longer than usual because I will be very much distracted in the next few weeks, unfortunately. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. As expected, it's, it's very, very interesting and uh, insightful. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Good to talk to you. Thank you. Bye.